So if you take a minute and you zoom out from Daniel, where did Daniel live? Babylon. Yes. Why was Daniel in Babylon? Was it because of his sin? Was it because he had sacrificed children on the altar to Moloch? Was it because he had disobeyed the commandments of God? Was it his sin? Uh-uh. It was 400 years of other people's sin that caused God to finally say, okay, enough is enough. If you want idols, I'll send you to the capital of them. Right? Not his fault. Do other people's sins affect you? Oh, man. Ask the kid that grew up with an alcoholic father. Ask kids that are in foster care. Is it their fault? Uh Uh-uh. Right? Totally. And one of the wisest pieces of advice you can ever have is this. Life is not what happens to you, but how you respond. That's what matters. Bad things are going to happen. How are you going to respond? And I've mentioned this study before. It's by Dr. Emmons from the University of California at Davis, where he took a group of people and he divided them in two and he followed them for a long time. And what he asked the two groups to do was this. One group, he said, every morning you write a list, just take a couple minutes and you write out a list of things that you're thankful for. And the other half of the group, he said, every morning you wake up and you write out a list of all the things that irritate you. Which group would you want to be in? (laughs) I prefer irritation, thank you very much. And then you start to follow them, like what happens to these people? The people that would write out the things that they were thankful for were optimistic. Is there something funny with this? Because it it feels like it keeps like turning on and off. I do have a voice that carries. I bet I could just yell this whole sermon without a mic. (laughs) So he he followed them and just kind of walked through, evaluated them, and he found the group that was positive, they were more optimistic. They reported living better lives. Uh, They exercised more. They had fewer visits to the hospital, to doctors, to ER. Just the list goes on and on and on and on. And they want to know why. Why is that? And what they came up with was people either have a positive interpretation bias or they have a negative interpretation bias. And that little difference there, oh, it's huge. It's huge. So it'd be like this. Say, someone with a positive interpretation bias is over here, and a negative interpretation bias is here, and they take the same test, and they flunk it. Both of them get the same score. The person with the positive interpretation bias, here's what happens in their head. Oh, that's a warning. I better study harder. I better get in a group. I better go back to my professor and ask for help. I better see if there's some options for me to get extra credit, right? They do something about it, and actually they get better. But the person with a negative interpretation bias, when they get their F, guess what they do? Oh, I'm such a loser. Oh, I'm never going to make it out of school. Oh, woe is me. Oh, I'm just giving up. And they get worse and worse and worse. See, life isn't about what happens to you. 
It's about how you respond. So you send a text to somebody, and they don't get back to you in the required five seconds. If you're a positive interpretation bias, you say, oh, I bet they're busy. Oh, I bet they're at Wednesday night church, and they have their phone put away. (laughs) If you have a negative interpretation bias, oh, they don't like you anymore. Oh, man, they're not my friend. Oh, they're mad at me. Right? It, It translates to every avenue of your life. That's why the Bible says, thankful. Any idea? Am I doing something? It's very possible. So the Bible says over and over, be thankful. Daniel, even though his life, he could have played the victim, he was a refugee, he was forced to be a eunuch, you name it, he could have played the victim, he never does. He turns what would be a normal obstacle and opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. So as we read this chapter, keep that in mind. Keep the fact in mind that he's in Babylon as a slave, really, forced to do things that he would not have wanted to have had done to him, and it's not because of his sin. It's somebody else's. Keep that in mind as we read this chapter. Verse 1, chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, probably not the whole Medo-Persian empire, just smaller, it's possible. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of Yahweh to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem namely 70 years. So the first year of Darius is either 539 or 538 BC, depending on what you look at. Going back that far, it's hard to kind of exact a year. If you can get within a year, you're good. Daniel was brought there in 605 BC. So from 605 BC to 538, 537, 538, 539 BC is how long? 67 years. So he picks up the scroll of, of Jeremiah. He's reading the scroll, comes to chapter 25, verse 11. He's like, oh my goodness, 70 years. We're in year 67. Oh my goodness, right? Does Daniel take the Bible seriously? He takes the Bible seriously. He's not like, well, it's symbolic, you know. It's all it is. It's just a symbol of, of how, you know, a generation or something. He doesn't explain it away. He doesn't do the numerology thing. Well, seven and 10, seven is, is perfection and 10 is completion. So this is just saying it's going to be a perfectly complete amount of time that we're there. He doesn't do any of that. He's like, dude, we're going back in three years. That's taking the Bible seriously. That's like, Wow. <laughs> Not only that, not only does he take the Bible seriously, he takes God's power seriously. He's like, God's going to do this. There's no indication that that there was any kind of talk about that happening. He just says, God's going to do this, because he said it was. The way that you maintain strong faith is both of those, the authority of Scripture and the power of God. If either of those begin to slip in your mind, what happens is your faith begins to slip. If 
God's word no longer has authority. If it's just, it contains God's word, but it's not God's word. Or you can get God's heart from it, but, but don't bank on it. Look out. You start to drift. Or if you believe in the authority of God's word, but you don't really believe God does anything anymore, same thing happens. Now, Daniel, when he reads, it's 70 years and this is year 67. Oh, yeah. All right, let's go. Let's go. This is the same God who got us out of Egypt. He can totally get us out of Babylon. I trust him. He's going to do that. God has said it, authority, and God will do it, power. Love that. So what's his response? Verse three, then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to Yahweh. This is the first time God's covenant name is used. It's in chapter nine. Up to this point, it's been uh, Aramaic or Adonai, which is a term for God. It's not his covenant name though. In chapter nine, when Daniel begins to pray, it's it's Yahweh. I prayed to Yahweh my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and princes and to our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Yahweh, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of Yahweh our God by walking in his laws, which he has set before us by his servants and prophets. All Israel has transgressed. It's like a skipping CD. (laughs) Has transgressed your law and turned aside refusing to obey your voice and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole earth, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written, In the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of Yahweh our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, Yahweh has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for Yahweh our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt, with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. Good prayer. 
I think you would call this a prayer of faith. And that term has kind of been ruined by TV evangelists because usually when they talk about the prayer of faith, they start getting hyped up and Jesus, right? I don't like that. I don't want to wear the shiny or have the funky hair. But I think if you read this one, it's really good. This is a great prayer. So Daniel knows, man, we're almost at the end of 70 years. He doesn't go out and rally or picket or say down with Darius. He doesn't do any of that. What does he do? He gets on his knees and prays. He doesn't say, man, that's a great verse. My mother-in-law needs to hear that one. Maybe I'll email it to her. My wife needs this one. I'm going to give it to her, right? No. He immediately responds with himself. What am I going to do with this? That's what he does. Number one, a physical response. Verse three, right? Sackcloth, ashes. Does God care about the position of our prayers? Is he like, if you want me to hear you, you better be on your knees. You better have your arms uplifted at a 45 degree angle. And you better be cowering and shaking. God does not care, right? But does position matter for us? I'd say yes. If you think you're going to pray by going and climbing in your bed and getting comfortable, what's going to happen? You won't pray, I'll tell you that much. Like position matters. He says he fasts. Why would Daniel fast during this time? You guys know who Jack Dorsey is? He is the CEO of Twitter. And he did a interview with a guy about his diet, like these... Silicon Valley dudes are like nutty about their diets right now. This is his diet. Monday through Friday, he eats one meal a day. In the evening, that's it. Not a big meal, one meal a day. And then he fasts over the weekend. He said the first time he did that, he started hallucinating. (laughs) That should probably tell you, maybe don't do that diet. That's probably what that tells you, right? But he says, what has happened is this, he has this intense ability to focus like he's never been able to focus before in his life. And so he just is like, oh, so why is Daniel fasting? I think he wants to focus. Not eating food, it allows there to be more blood for your brain. That's what it actually allows. So you can focus in a way you could not focus before. So he's on top of that, how much of, how much today with microwaves and gas ovens or whatever you have, how long does it take to prepare meals? He's a single dude. How much time is given over to just that exercise? Go back a couple thousand years where you're making a fire and collecting food and have, it's much harder. We go to the grocery store, they would go to the garden. They go to the meat section, they go grab a knife. It would have taken a lot of time. So it's for focus and it's for time. I can get a lot more accomplished. I want to seek God right now. And then notice how many times I stopped counting. He confesses sins. Oh, it's confession. This prayer is confession after confessional after confessional. And what does he say over and over? We sinned. Did Daniel sin? No. Not necessarily, not in that way to get them put into Babylon. 
but he understands national sin and he understands something about sin. I think you should beware of any preacher who talks about sin in the second person. You sinners, you beware. I learned that very early on. I think it was the second time I taught at the gospel rescue mission. I taught there for, I don't know, six years, seven years. And when I was there, when it was the old building, if you remember the old gospel rescue mission building, very small. And when you were teaching, the door to come in was right behind you. So the men would be in front of you. It was only men only. And the door that you got in, that people would come in, it was right behind you. So I'm teaching, I think it was my second time. And I'm in, I don't, I don't, didn't, I don't use much notes now, but then I, I didn't even hardly use notes. So I'm teaching away. And then all of a sudden I hear the door behind me like fumbling and all kinds of noise. And I'm thinking, I just ignore it, just keep going. So I'm just hammering ahead. And then the door just explodes and in tumbles this guy who is totally drunk, like slurring his words, not able to stand up. So somebody kind of helps him up and they, they get him in a seat and he sits down. And I just happen to be talking about addiction. So I'm like, yeah, this'll work. So I kept right on talking about addiction. He lasted about 30 seconds and then just started cussing at me. You blankety, blankety, like I'm like, oh, then just went right back out the door. So I'm sitting there, talk about an attention getter. Like every eye was on me. Like, how do you think about that, preacher boy? What's she going to (laughs) do? And then now I'm just lost. I think you just cussed me out. Like, oh my goodness. What am I, what was I thinking? Just completely lost. But I knew this enough that if you get lost in a sermon, there's this trick. Stop and pray. So I said, you know what? Let's stop and pray. So I just prayed for the guy. I prayed God's blessing on him. I prayed that he would be safe that night. I prayed that he would find somewhere safe to sleep. I prayed that the addiction that was swallowing him up would be broken. Just prayed. And as I'm praying, that part of my mind is actually going, okay, where was that? Where was I at? Where was I at? And I kind of, that's where I was at. All right, Amen. And then I just charged the head again. <laughs> there was this guy that came up, and he'd heard at that point both of my messages. And he'd been there a long time. He goes, hey, can I talk to you? I said, sure. He said, I love that you prayed for that man. I loved how you prayed for that man. Because that was me. Thank you. And then the second thing he said was this. I like that when you preach and you talk about sin, you say, we keep doing that. And then he said this, and I'll never forget it. I think you might not be a fake after all. It's like, well, I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> oh, beware. Daniel does not do that. Doesn't say Israel sinned. Doesn't say they sinned. Those blow it cases over and over and over. We've sinned. Collective sin, national sin. Then thirdly, what you see is this. He just says, it's fair. Us being in Babylon is fair. We broke your covenant. The prophets came and spoke to us. They warned us. We knew better. This thing is on us. Like I love verse five and six. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commands and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and princes and our fathers and all the people of the land. This is on us. We sinned. Today, we've turned sin into a medical condition. 
a self-esteem issue. Daniel does not. We have sinned, period. And if you know prophets, what prophets do very often is they grab the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. And they extract from the Torah these covenant times where Israel pledged fidelity to God. And they'll bring them up and say, look at what the Torah says we promised to do, and we have not done that. They do it over and over. Deuteronomy 27 and 28, at Mount Ebal, where they go back and forth, the blessings and the cursings. If we obey you, we get blessed. If we disobey you, we go to Babylon. So he's bringing that up again. We blew it. We did not hold up our side of the bargain. Verse 16, he finishes the prayer. Oh, Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and do his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. You know how long this entire prayer is? Two minutes. It's not the length of a prayer that matters, it's strength. And this is a strong one. It's not the length of a prayer that matters. It's do we actually pray? That's what actually matters. Now, what does Daniel ask for? Mercy, forgiveness, action, act God for your name and for your people because we don't deserve it, right? Where else does that work? He says that, I love that verse. God, do all this stuff because we've sinned. (laughs) Be merciful, fix your city, get us out of this place because we sinned. I love that. Where else would that work? Hey, can I borrow your car? Because I know I wrecked the last one. Do you mind? Where else does that work? Only, only with God. It's amazing. So verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my plea before Yahweh, my God, for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand speaking with me and saying, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. And at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out and I've come to tell it to you for you are greatly loved. How cool is that? 
Daniel, I'm here because you're greatly loved. Do you know that the same is true for you? Read Romans chapter 8, verses 32 through 38. It's just nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not height, not depth, not breath, not angel, not demon. Nothing can separate you from God's love because you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. God gives an answer. Daniel says it's at the evening sacrifice. You know temple tradition There's a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. How long has it been since Daniel was at a morning sacrifice or an evening sacrifice in the temple? 67 years. And what is he still doing? Praying at the evening sacrifice. How amazing is that? He saw that for maybe five, six years as a kid, maybe 10 years at the best, and he's still carrying that pattern with him 67 years later. Mom, dad, does it matter what you do with your kids? Wow. Much more than what we say is the patterns of our life. I think Daniel's mom and dad, evening and morning sacrifice, they were there. And now it's just imprinted in the concrete of Daniel's heart, morning and evening. That's what I do. I pray morning and evening. That's the pattern that was set for me, and I'm continuing to do it right now. And so Gabriel shows up. There are traditions that say the three named angels in the Bible, Gabriel, Michael, and Lucifer, are archangels. No one knows for sure. They might be right. Obviously, Lucifer falls, and the two named angels that are left are Gabriel and Michael. Gabriel shows up to f- four different times, to Daniel a couple times, to Zechariah in the temple, Zechariah and his wife, Luke chapter one, one son, they don't have it, they're really old. Gabriel shows up and says, hey, Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. You're gonna have a kid. Prayers have been heard. I haven't prayed that for 50 years, man. You're holding out on me, right? And, and, and then Zechariah's like, really? I don't think it's gonna happen. And if you read the account, I think Gabriel gets mad. He's like, What? I stand in the presence of God. How hard is it to have a kid? There's thousands of them around. Are you kidding me? This is not hard for God, right? It's ticked. And then he goes and tells Mary, you're going to bear Jesus. So because of that, because of Gabriel's like connection to Israel, I thought that he is Israel's angel, but the Bible doesn't necessarily say that. Pretty cool though. Every time Gabriel shows up, it is a supernatural intervention by God that's going to happen every time. Here's this one, verse 24. 70 weeks are decreed upon your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, then for 62 weeks 
It shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Totally clear, huh? (laughs) I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. What? (laughs) You can just imagine Daniel like scribbling like, what in the world are you talking about? Okay, so this is called Daniel's 70 week. That's a very, very famous prophecy, probably the most famous in the Old Testament. I'm going to try to work through it. I have a couple slides, but not yet. Um, Number one, it says 70 weeks. Is there any other translations that anybody has? Okay, the word weeks is heptads. Um, It's used a couple of times. When Jacob works to get Rachel his wife, he has to work seven years, and it says that Jacob fulfilled his heptad, his seven years. Um, Most likely, most people believe that the word 70 weeks there, it's 70 units of seven. Okay? Here's why that's important. How did chapter nine start? Daniel's reading in the scroll of Isaiah. 70 years and it's done. Yay, yippee, we're out of here in three years. What does God come and say? Nope. In fact, there's 70 units of 70 coming. God's saying it's a lot longer than that, actually, Daniel. It's not 70 years until things are done. It's 490 years. It's much harder. That's what God's saying right there. It would be greatly disappointing to a guy who thought, I've got three years left. God says, no, 490. What? Oh, man. And then he says, it's going to get super bad. There's going to be this desolation and this desolator and bad things are going to happen, right? That's how it ends. People say that could be Titus in AD 70 because of what he does to the temple. He completely burns it to the ground. Uh, Every stone's turned off every stone, just like Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24 because they're trying to get the gold out between the stones. Other people say, no, it's talking about the, the final bad dude, the super mega beast that's coming, the Antichrist. I think I can easily argue for either one. Take your pick. doesn't matter. At the end, it's going to get bad. I think the Bible makes that pretty clear. There's going to be really bad stuff that happens. So Daniel would be disappointed. It's going to be hard. But there's good news, verse 24. Because of the hardship, because it's going to take longer than you think, here's what's actually going to happen. Like, read how good this is. Transgression will be finished. There will be an end to sin. Atone for iniquity. 
Bring in everlasting righteousness, that word, sadaqah. Things will be right with you and other people. Things will be right with you and God. There'll be no animosity, that stuff, that, that outness, that wrongness that you can have with people, no more. How brilliant would this be? To seal both vision and prophet. All the prophets are going to come to past. And to anoint a most holy place. It's going to be a brand new Eden. That's what's coming where once again you live in shalom with people, with animals, with creation, a most holy place. It's a refurnished Eden. How good is that? How cool. It is a blueprint for the end of the age. So while it's super hard, it's really hopeful. Like imagine life without sin, without evil, without disease, without gravity. Because right now, life is a fight against those things that eventually all of us lose. But imagine if there's no sin and no evil. How long would the human live? If you never had bitterness towards somebody, if you never had the clenched teeth anger that can happen to you, if you never experienced that cascade of very harmful chemicals that just come out when you are bitter or angry or whatever it is, if all that was gone, just imagine how long we'd live, how good life would be. It'd be brilliant. So, yeah, hard, but really, really hopeful. Happy day is coming. going to be much harder than you thought, though. Not 70 years, 490 years, right? So, what I want to show now, and I've got three slides. You can put number one up. Perfect. So, what you have in this prophecy is you have a beginning point, chapter 25. Right? Here's what's going to happen in verse 24. Here's the blueprint. So know and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, that's when the clock starts. Click. So when is that? There are three options. Option number one, 538 BC, Cyrus says, hey, go back. Second Chronicles 36, 22. But if you read that really carefully, what Cyrus says to go do is build the temple. So I personally don't believe that's the date. Some people do. I don't. Number two, 458 BC, Artaxerxes. This is Artaxerxes of, of Esther, most likely. Uh, maybe his son, her son. That's possible as well. In Ezra 7:12, Ezra is given the right, but it's the right to return and really what the king wants is this. I want you to go back there to your God over there and make offerings for me because I want your God on my side. So it's not necessary to build Jerusalem. But when you come to 445 BC, the first of Nisan, in the 20th year of this same Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes, Longimanus, in Nehemiah chapter two, Nehemiah is told, go back and rebuild Jerusalem. It's the word Two, do exactly what this says, restore and build Jerusalem. So what I believe is that started it. So converting that to normal Gregorian calendar, it's March, somewhere in March, 444 BC. So that's, you just started. So slide number two. How much time goes by? That's the slide. Just making sure. How much time goes by, 
you have, if you keep reading, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built with squares and moat, but in troubled time, verse 25. And you know Jerusalem goes through troubled times with Antiochus Epiphanes, with the Romans coming in, with the the occupation. They were occupied pretty much the whole time from the Greeks, from the Medo-Persians to the Greeks, to Antiochus Epiphanes, and to the Romans. Troubled times. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So if you add up 62 plus seven, you get 69 sets of seven. Do the math. 483 lunar years, because the Bible uses the lunar years. That's everything's 360 days. So you have to convert lunar years into solar years. We have 5.2517613 more days. That's not actually true. I just made up that rest of that. So <laughs> it is 2.5. I know that much. There's, there's 5. Two, five more days and some change. So to convert, you end up with 476 years and 24.7 days. So you just add from March, don't know the exact date of March, March 444 BC plus 476 years and 25 days, you come to April 33 AD. Pretty amazing, right? So We know that what's going to happen, according to this prophecy, is in April of 33 AD, Messiah is going to be cut off and have nothing. What? That's crazy. Is there any other Old Testament sections that say, hey, bad things will happen to Messiah? Yeah. They're called the Suffering Servant Songs of Isaiah. There are six of them, and they culminate in Isaiah 53, where it says this, he's going to do all this. For my transgression, he's cut off. He's despised. He's spit on. His beard is plucked out. The suffering songs of Isaiah. So this was not an unknown thing like, hey, something bad's going to happen to Messiah. Like it was, it was ignored a lot because people didn't want that kind of Messiah. They wanted a king instead. But the Bible's full of, no, something bad's going to happen. So there's your start date and there's your end date. So when was Jesus' ministry? Does it sync up with this? Well, slide number three, we date Jesus, his ministry, by his baptism in Luke chapter three, verse one, that says this, Jesus was baptized in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. And we know that's 29 AD, just from records outside of the Bible, extra biblical uh, records tell us it's 29 AD. So that's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus celebrates four Passovers. So that's four years. So you come to 33 AD. You can figure out the Passover by the moon. That's how the Passover is figured out. It's on the full moon. If you figure out when Passover is in 33 AD, it's April 3rd, 33 AD. How precise is that? It's unbelievable. It's one of the most unbelievable prophecies in the Bible. It's why Jesus says, if you know, if you read the gospels, Jesus is saying over and over, John chapter two, when he's being pushed to pronounce he's the king, he'll say this, no, it's not my time. No, it's not my time. But then all of a sudden, he tells his boys, hey, go, you're going to see this colt tied up, grab it, bring it to me. Why? Because it's my time. And he marches into Jerusalem 
and pronounces, I'm the king, because it was his time. And if you read Luke's account of that, Luke chapter 19, verses 41, 42, right in there, when he leaves Jerusalem, he goes up on the Mount of Olives and he starts to weep over the city. Why? He tells us. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I want, like a mother hen, to gather you underneath my wings, to to cover you, to protect you from what's coming. But you would not because you did not know that this was the day of your visitation. Why would Jesus say that? Because of this right here. You should have known. You guys should have known. We gave you the clock. You should have known. And you missed it. You missed the day. Just like when Jesus was born, you got these wise men that come to the scholars of Jerusalem. Hey, we think a king's being born right now. Where does your book say he'll be born? Well, let's see here. Micah chapter five, verse two. Yeah, he's gonna be born in Bethlehem. Oh, great. We're gonna go check it out. Okay. That's a, that's a, a, a morning jog to Bethlehem. They don't even check it out. It's insane to me. But do I do the same thing? There's incredible promises, incredible things that God, oh, that's it, that's interesting. Just pass over them. Amazing. Three things and we're done. I'm almost out of time. Number one, Daniel was told this. It's hard, but take hope. It's hard. It's not 70 years, it's 490 years. It's seven times harder than you think, but take hope. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. I tell people all the time, life is hard, but take hope your life will be rebuilt. The body you have right now, yeah, it's falling apart. Gravity, sin, evil. You, you destroying it. Ice cream, all those things. But take hope. Take hope. I'm all for ice cream's destruction. I have an appetite for that destruction. (laughs) But take hope. 1 Corinthians 15 says this. Your body's like a seed, and one day it will be planted, and it will come forth and produce something that's out of this world. This world is hard, no doubt. But good news, a holy place is being made. Jesus is going to recreate, renew, regenesis. Matthew 20 says, verse 28. I'm going to regenesis earth. And it's going to be back to the way it's supposed to be. Brilliant and beautiful. Yeah, it's hard. But take hope, it's going to be rebuilt. Number two, how high was Daniel's opinion of God's word? It forced him to action. He read Jeremiah 25, 11. There wasn't verses back then, but he reads that text. He's like, oh my goodness, this is happening. Do we have that same high opinion of God's word? When we read something and we say, God said it, it's going to happen. I trust it. And that's, if you read church history, that's how men and women who transformed the world lived They read something in Scripture, they're like, oh my goodness, that's happening, let's go. God said, let's go do it. They transformed the world. Taking God and his word at face value, period. And thirdly and lastly, there's this great text, 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 11, very prophetic, very future, this is all going to happen, the earth. And then he says this, After all this, verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, 
what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Prophecy can like pique people's interest, right? So we're like, oh man, and people get really into prophecy and that's cool, amazed by it. But don't forget the life that Daniel led. That's just as important. And if we get too wrapped up in prophecies and end time stuff without also knowing what kind of person ought I to be when I walk out of this building, then we've missed it. What kind of people should we be when we walk out of this? We should be like Daniel. That's what I say. Who went back and worked for the king. Went back and worked in the most evil city in the Bible saying, I'm going to plant gardens here. I'm going to pray for the peace of this place. I'm going to expect God to work in the worst city in the world. That's where it's supposed to be. Okay, good news. This, this thing's going to be rebuilt. Good news. This thing's going to be rebuilt. Good news. So I'm going to go live a life in anticipation of what's coming, praying that God's kingdom comes to Grant's past. God's kingdom comes to my heart. God's kingdom comes to Edgewater Christian Fellowship. What kind of people ought we to live, be in godliness and holiness? That's where it's supposed to be. So Jesus, thank you for the precision of this prophecy. May it cause us to have a incredible respect, awe, wonder at your word that it is living, it's sharp, it's quick, it's powerful. That it's true. And may we be people that put our trust in it. And may the trust that we put in your word cause us to have faith in your power to keep it. And may we live lives that look like we believe it. So would you fill us with your spirit? Would you empower us to go back into our homes, back into the kingdom of Grant's past that is yours, and live lives that are godly and holy? So go with us, we ask. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.